following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This morning we're going to talk, uh, fairly briefly as it happens, uh, about the Apostles' Creed. And uh, this is a little bit one of those weird moments where I'm talking about something I don't really have a lot, I'm not preaching from a scriptural text, which is usually my preference, as, as I've told most of you at one time or another. Um, there's not really a whole lot of scripture, like, quoted in the creed, right? But if you look at what the creed says, it, it's derived from the story of scripture um, at every, every turn, like every word. And... Um, Still, though, I, I didn't feel I could just give a lecture about the creed without giving you some scripture. I felt like I would be a really bad pastor if I did that. And so I'm going to read to you a text which I think is really interesting and probably has some connection to the creed in a certain way. And uh, I'll leave that to you to fill in. But um, this is from the book of Acts, chapter 13. Uh, this is Paul preaching to the Jewish community in Antioch, and uh, I'll read it. You don't have to follow along in the Bible unless you'd like to, but the page number is there. If you want to grab one of these red Bibles, you can. Paul says, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died, was laid beside his ancestors, and experienced corruption. What, what he's just talking about the decay of a body. But he whom God raised up experienced no corruption, no decay. Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, that what the prophets said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, and here he's quoting, be amazed and perish. For in your days I am doing a work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. I encountered that text um, unexpectedly and wanted to read it to you because I think it sets up a few things this morning. And we'll see if that connection is is clear or not, and if it's not, it's okay. Um, So in the early days of Christianity, there was a struggle about what constituted Uh, true Christian belief. Um, The faith had been handed down from the apostles, Paul among them, and was being practiced by an increasingly wide group of people from all around the Mediterranean basin. And as Christian belief spread, it, it started to become infected with ideas from the broader culture. Ideas that were not part of the core doctrine that had been handed down by the apostles but which came instead from the religious and philosophical and cultural and political views of the day. Of course, we don't have that problem anymore. (laughs) And the very first threats um, to appear, the first infections, if you will, of this core Christian doctrine, came from two main sources. One source was a group called the Gnostics, and the second was a, uh, an individual charismatic leader named Marcion who um, developed a wide following in the mid-2nd century. 
now, you may have heard of Gnosticism. Uh, show of hands, anybody ever heard the word Gnosticism before? L- most people in the room have heard of that. Right? Gnosticism, it's with the G-N at the beginning. Uh, it, it comes from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. Uh, and the Gnostics believed that they possessed a special mystical knowledge about the world. And part of that knowledge, which could only be revealed to these special ones, was that matter is evil. Right? So the entire created order, everything we can see and touch, including and maybe especially our own bodies, these were all a mistake, according to the Gnostics, created by one of many spiritual beings in the universe. And the way to salvation for the Gnostics was through special knowledge that would be delivered by a special spiritual messenger. And in Christian Gnosticism, that special messenger was Jesus. But, since the Gnostics believed that bodies are inherently evil, um, they, they believed about Jesus that he was not truly human, that his body was an illusion. Right? He only appeared to have physical form. He was actually pure spirit. Okay? That's Gnosticism in like... 60 seconds. We could go way, way deeper on that. The other main threat to early Christianity, as I said, was, was Marcion, who was actually the son of a bishop. Um, pastor's kids always make trouble. <laughs> not, I mean, not mine, but... Um. Now, Marcion... Yeah, yet, thank you for that word. I appreciate that. Um, Marcion held some quasi-Gnostic views, right, about the physical world, and on top of that, he also hated Judaism, uh, which is a little bit weird for somebody who's in a religion which was birthed out of Judaism. But what he said was that the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures were erroneous, that, um, in fact, they were inspired by a rogue deity right? um, called Jehovah, and that Jehovah, the Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, actually did make the world, but he shouldn't have, because, again, matter is evil, Right? But he was not the God and Father of Jesus. This is a different God in the Old Testament. So he threw out the entire Old Testament. Uh, He threw out all the Gospels except for Luke, which he then uh, purged of any reference to the Old Testament. And he only read some of the letters of of the apostles. That was his his Bible, his canon. Um, And he also taught that, that Jesus, once again, could not have been... Uh, a true human, so that, that he was actually never born of a human woman. He just appeared spiritually on the earth, right? Okay, so what on earth does all of this church history have to do with the Apostles' Creed, which ostensibly we're talking about today? And then what does it have to do with anything that matters to us? Well, The answer is that nothing in the world ever happens in a vacuum. The Apostles' Creed, like all creeds, was developed at least in part to refute false teaching. It was was developed to define what true Christianity was and what true Christians believe. And so I have the creed, and I'll, I'll put it on the screen here. For you, can you see that? Okay, it's the text is a little smaller than I would normally want to put on the screen for us, 
Um, but I wanted to have the whole thing there so you could see it. Now, this is a slightly different version of the creed than we recited earlier, just in little words like ours has the word whence in it, and this one doesn't. It's little things like that. Otherwise, it's the same creed. It's been said for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the, uh, in the Christian church. And sometimes when I talk about the Apostles' Creed, I, th- I talk about it as like this, this beautiful, um, flawless document uh, that, that we can all kind of hold hands and get around, right? It's, the, it's the, like the simplest, most basic of the creeds. Um, by the way, in my research, I discovered something I did not know, which is that the Eastern Orthodox Church does not use the Apostles' Creed because it was not derived from one of the official ecumenical councils. They use the Nicene Creed, which is... Uh, a slightly expanded version of the Apostles' Creed, you could say. So it makes me think, maybe we should do the Nicene Creed instead, because one of the things I like about creeds, as I've told you, is that they kind of bring us all together. But I, I have this, this maybe idealistic, perhaps naive view of this creed, and I started to look into it a little bit more, and it turns out that um, this is not unique in that it was just pure Christian doctrine laid down. Like some of the other creeds, you can see very clearly they're, they're combating different types of heresies and false beliefs and teachings. Well, this one is too a little bit. So think of what I said about Gnosticism and about Marcionism and look at some of the words in this creed. If we're defining in the Apostles' Creed what true Christianity is and what it isn't, take a look at this. True Christianity does not teach that the world must have been created by a rogue deity who was not the father of Jesus, or that the world is inherently evil because it is material and not spiritual. No, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, who is the creator of heaven and earth. Does it say creator or maker, this one? Creator, yeah. You see it both ways. True Christianity does not teach that Jesus himself was a purely spiritual being, who could not have taken on a physical body? No. The creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, who, yes, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but who was born of the Virgin Mary, a, a human person, right? So uh, you probably would assume reading this that this is trying to put forth the doctrine of the virgin birth, which, of course, it is in part. But it's also trying to say to the Gnostics and to the Marcionites, no, Jesus was born of a, of a woman, And on top of that, he died and was buried, and then he rose again in bodily form. He didn't just float away as a spirit. Right? And by the way, true Christianity is not a vague or undated conceptual religion. It happened at a specific time because of specific events that you can go look up in the history book. He suffered under not just a guy, but Pontius Pilate. Who has a Wikipedia article? (laughs) Uh, Also, true Christianity is not something that is reserved only for those with true, special, spiritual insight or knowledge. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Why do we say Catholic when we're Protestants? Well, all right, word nerds, let's go on a little journey. The English word Catholic comes from the French word, Catholic, which comes from a Latin word that I don't know, 
which comes from a Greek word. Right? So this is like the fifth generation of words here. And they, they all lined up for one Facebook picture. It was really cute. <laughs> the Greek word that is the root of our English word Catholic, do you know what it means? It means about the whole, universal, according to the whole group, right? So the holy Catholic church, using that English word is confusing because in the 1550s, the, the Roman Catholic church attached it very cleverly to their own name, right? But the truth is that Catholic, Catholic, and back to the Greek means it's about the whole thing, Right? So it's not just for people who have special knowledge or insight, who have been given this spiritual gift. It's for everybody. We believe in the communion of saints, which means that all of us have relationship with Jesus and with each other. True Christianity does not teach that our bodies are meaningless shells to be discarded in favor of a pure spiritual state. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And that's not just the body of Jesus. The creed already covered that. This, creed, this clause in the creed is talking about the resurrection of our own bodies. Right? I used to work at a cafe and my boss was kind of like a, one of those um, very spiritual but like anything goes kind of people. Right? And we had awesome conversations. And she was one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, but she had what I would, what were to me some really weird beliefs. <laughs> and she once asked me if I believed in reincarnation. And I was like, no. But I do believe in resurrection. <laughs> right? So um, check yourself a little bit when you're making fun of people who have weird beliefs. Because we have some weird beliefs. <laughs> the resurrection of the body. The life everlasting. So you can see that even this very early, very basic, very fundamental creed was used, at least in part, to define not only what true Christianity was, but also what it was not. And now you can choose to respond to that information in two different ways. My first response, honestly, in doing the research was to become a little bit discouraged, because again, I had a sort of an idealistic view. And because I'm a, uh, a, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter, right? I'm a, I'm a uniter, not a divider. Um, I want us to be together with, with as many, many of our brothers and sisters as we can. And you, you could, therefore, be discouraged by thinking about even this creed uh, having been used as a method to keep certain people out. Or you can do what I'm going to choose to do, which is to think of it rather as a means of keeping people connected to the center of our faith. And I would argue that as a church who celebrates and, and lifts up and values roots, one of our foundational values, that we ought to think of it that latter way. Right? Not, not as a boundary line, which we use and protect to keep those people out, but as a way of connecting us to the center of Christian faith as it has been defined and practiced for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Consider this. When various Christian denominations started to crop up, 
I'm primarily thinking now of the, the Protestant Reformation, 16th century. They didn't throw out the Apostles' Creed and move on to their own thing. I mean, some people did, but we don't call them Christians. What they did was they added more stuff to the list. Right? Now, this is its own problem, because what they were doing to each other, basically, was setting, setting up those boundaries along the edges. But they didn't give up on the center. Martin Luther had some really mean things to say about the Pope. You can go read them. He was not a nice person. John Calvin was even meaner. That's probably not even a strong enough word. But they held on to the creed. They didn't they never placed themselves outside of that center. They just became preoccupied maybe with the edges. So the development and refinement of doctrine and teaching has always happened throughout Christian history. It always will happen for as long as we have to practice this faith together. But the reason that, uh, from my perspective, Martin Luther and John Calvin and all of their descendants, which includes us, (laughs) the reason that we're not heretics is because we have never abandoned the creed. The creed is what holds us together despite our many, 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 many differences of opinion. And here's the important thing, I think. It holds us together around that center, not around the edges and the boundaries. See, there's so much pain and anguish at the boundary lines. Many of you have been stopped at a boundary line at one time or another related to Christian doctrine and told, you don't belong here. People like you or people who believe that don't belong here with us. There's pain and anguish at the boundaries, but there is great joy at the center. And the creed holds us at the center. So, it doesn't matter to me what you think about the end times or what your atonement theology is or what you think the Bible does or does not say about specific matters related to human sexuality or which hymns or songs you want to sing or whether you were sprinkled or dipped <laughs> at your baptism, whether you think John Calvin was right or whether you are right in thinking that he was a monster. It does not matter to me who you vote for or whether you vote at all. It doesn't matter to me whether you are a proud veteran or whether you think military service is off the table for true Christian believers. And I know people who believe both of those things and lots of stuff in the middle. None of that, of course, all that stuff matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I mean, I did say it doesn't matter, but that's not what I meant. (laughs) They matter, but they are not the center. We don't get to call each other heretics over any of the things I just mentioned. When we gather around the center, instead of standing guard at the boundaries, we are able to join hands with those on the right and those on the left and get down to the real business of our faith, which is trusting Jesus and obeying his commandments and doing the work of bringing about his kingdom on earth 
as it is in heaven. And we do that from a place of unity centered around the creed. Now, um, let me say a few unplanned, unscripted remarks to those of you who struggle with the creed for various reasons. Um, and I know that you're in the room. I would, I would be very sad if you left this place thinking, well, Scott doesn't want me here because I, I, I'm not down with every word of that creed. <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the center we have to get to, I guess I don't belong here after all. Please don't hear me saying that. There are parts of this creed that I struggle with just as much as many of you. But the creed is what, what holds us <laughs> close to the center. And if, and if you hear me saying, you have to be at the center <laughs> to be part of who we are, you're, you're mishearing me because that's just another type of boundary. That just makes the boundary smaller, right? Um. One of my favorite thinkers and writers recently is Brian Zahn, and I put up one of his quotations uh, on the screen for our worship meditation. Maybe the guys can fire that up uh, as I'm thinking of it. But he's a mountain climber, and he talks about um, the creed as a a rope that you can clip into. He's accused, as I am a lot, of being on a slippery slope. Oh, you can't say that, Pastor. That's a slippery slope. Well, if you want to climb a mountain, I have nudes for you. The slopes are slippery. (laughs) The alternative to the slippery slope is, uh, I think, called a pasture. <laughs> it is not the mountain of God. If you want to climb the mountain of God, the slopes are slippery. And what he says is that you clip into, uh, like any good mountain climber, you have to have something stronger and more uh, centered than yourself that you can clip into. Um, and that's, that's what I mean when I say that the creed is the center that holds us together. Is that okay? Did, is that clear? I just realized as I was talking that I... I may have been saying something that was being received the opposite of how I wanted it to be received. So, um, That's not a very uh, great rhetorical way to end a sermon. <laughs> but I am now out of time, and then some. So, uh, <clears throat> Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the roots of our faith which run so deep into the soil that it holds us in place when the wind blows, that it keeps us uh, from falling off the slippery slopes of the mountain. We pray that all of us uh, would be united by these words rather than divided, that we would be included by them, not excluded. Even those of us who have trouble with some of them, that we would be uh, tied to something uh, as a means of safety, not as a means of constraint. May we be aware of the rich beauty that comes from confessing the faith of our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and ancestors that go back far beyond we could ever know who they are. Help us to find joy and peace and comfort and security in that reality, in this creed which you have given to the church. We give you thanks through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, <clears throat> I want to invite you now to come to the communion table. This is one of those other things that, that unites us. It's a, uh, another thing that expresses our roots. 
all of you who confess Jesus as Lord, who are seeking to follow him in this place, are invited now to come to his table to receive the bread and the cup. And uh, if you have children who are at the other end of the building, I would ask you to go get them before you come to take communion because I think they've been there a little longer than usual today. Uh, And that's my fault. So um, our table is open. All who seek to follow Jesus can come and receive his body and blood in this moment. And if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here as well. Uh, Respond as the Spirit speaks to you. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 